So we want to dive in and keep going in James chapter 4. And this morning's sermon title is God Gives More Grace. God Gives More Grace. And uh, I'm going to try very hard not to wail and cry and weep like I did last week, even though the passage gives those commands. You know, I just don't want to exhaust you. But um, it's, in a sense, it's quite a challenging passage. It's quite demanding. Remember that throughout the letter, one of James' headline points is that we, God is bringing us to the place of undivided loyalty to himself. That there's this wholeheartedness. There's this completion, this fullness uh, that's carried us across a line or a goal. And we love him and others in this place of fullness or completion with all our hearts. And towards the end of last week, we just saw that when we get this right, we are sowing and, and reaping righteousness and peace. There's a, there's a sowing there's a reaping, there's a raising of a harvest of righteousness that is sown from the place of peace. Now, what I said right at the beginning of the series is that almost everything James is going to tell us is rooted directly in something Jesus said normally from the Sermon in the Mount. And nowhere today is that more explicit uh, than today is that more explicit but we'll come to that in a moment. But I want us to just take a snippet from the Sermon on the Mount before we read James chapter 4. We'll read James chapter 4 as we unpack it. But Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus says this. When you pray, do not be like the two-faced. There's that dual sense again. Do not be like the hypocrites. Who love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Abba who is unseen. Then your Abba or father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling on like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Abba knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. This is not a recipe or a recital. Nevertheless, it's very good to know how to recite it. But our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven our debtors or our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one and then we know the early church took a doxology from probably one of David's psalms, and said, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Now this contrast, this kind of praying where you just get to ask, Jesus will say in chapter 7, and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Whoever asks, <laughs> receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks to them, the door opens. 
And there's this natural, healthy relationship that Jesus has in mind. And it couldn't be more different than when we get to James chapter 1. I'm in chapter 4 and verse 1. You see, our first point is that there's a war within us that causes conflict all around us. James asks this question. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to everyday people, (laughs) many of whom did not have power or status or whatever, but he just knows who we are. And he says, what causes these quarrels and fights? Don't Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your head or nigh, from which we get the word hedonism. You want pleasure, happiness. It's the great goal. (laughs) And we regard it as self-evident in our world today that people are fully entitled to seek pleasure and happiness as their greatest goal in life. Now these passages flow tightly from the logic at the end of chapter 3 where we saw those two competing versions of wisdom. Each was built on its own set of principles, each making complete sense to the people who were inside that, sense of, uh, that system. And so James is now unpacking the one wisdom again. The wisdom that does not believe, James chapter 1 and verse 4, that God gives generously to all without finding fault. And that we can trust him with a very deep trust because every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above who does not change like the shifting shadows. Chapter 1 and verse 17. And when we don't have that kind of view of a generous, gracious, giving God, we find ourselves ending up in a world of conflict and pain. And that's because James says there's a war within you. What causes the fights out there? It's because there's a war inside you. There's a war going on inside of us that's causing a war all around us. This way of life is a resentfully jealous, entitled life. Its ambitions are self-centered. And so this war within us triggers conflict around us because the desires that we won't resist, (laughs) those desires are there because we are determined that those are the things we need to be happy. Psychologists call it the guiding fiction. And so we say, if I had, and then fill in the blank, if I had a bigger paycheck, if I had, Uh, a wife or a husband, if I had a happier wife or a husband, fill in the blank, if I had, then I could be happy. And And it's a guiding fiction because it literally shapes your life. And you don't make good decisions because you keep reverting to this thing that guides you. But it's fiction because it's simply not true 
Even if you got that thing, you got the bigger paycheck, you got a different person or something miraculous happened to your husband or wife, I can tell you now, you still wouldn't be happy. And psychologists have found that and they're not even Christians. They're going, if you can't find your peace and your contentment in your world that you've got right now, you're not going to get it just because your circumstances change. And so there's this description of people who are unhappy and fighting, fighting with themselves, fighting with others, unhappy and resentful towards God because he does not behave like any decent idol should. What's that? Well, in a world of idolatry, just wait while Bert catches his Bible page. There we go. In a world of idolatry, the gods have one main job. And that's to give us what we want and to keep us from what we don't want. And when the gods don't perform, well, then we get pretty grumpy with them. And very often in that space where we are asking and telling God what his will on earth should be, we're not praying your will be done. In fact, we very bluntly are saying, God, my will be done. Thank you very much. What we really want is to control the hearts and minds and the behavior of the people around us. And so our praying becomes part of the problem in this war for control. And then we get grumpy because we don't get what we ask, and James is very clear why. And then somehow we start to question our faith because the gods have not performed as we demanded. And Jesus is teaching us and James is reminding us that praying is not about, <laughs> this kind of praying is not about asking for God's will to come. It's just demanding that our will be done. Now understand this, for James, throughout the letter as you look at it, asking in faith is the currency of heaven. Asking in faith is the currency of heaven. But the pin code to make a withdrawal is selflessness. And if you're going to come with anything other than selflessness, the resources of heaven are not going to be released. If we punch in a selfish code, the bank of heaven is just not going to pay out. So we're living in a world that's demanding, literally demanding, happiness and pleasure. They are the altars of our culture, and we will sacrifice almost anything for those things. Because these are the things that we actually worship. And we will sue or cancel culture anyone who does not give us the happiness to which we feel entitled. <clears throat> and James describes this as a world at war. And he says the war has started inside you. So you're going to have to make peace inside you if you want to find peace beyond you. Then he keeps the punches rolling. The second point is that compromising your faith towards God is like compromising your faithfulness in marriage. 
He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, throughout the, the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets linked Israel's many gods, their idolatry, to their adultery. Now, that was for a reason. Canaanite religions, the Egyptian religions, and for that matter, even a whole lot that were present in Jesus' time, they were essentially fertility cults. And so people engaged in sexual acts at the temples and in the high places, and those sexual acts were supposed to stimulate the kind of prosperity and freedom that you were wanting the gods to deliver for you. And so literally when you idol worshipped, you had sex with someone who wasn't your husband or wife. So many gods meant many sexual partners in life. And the interesting thing is that Scripture consistently describes that being faithfully loving to one God makes us faithfully loving to one sexual partner for life. Now, it took the Old Testament guys a long time to learn that, but as you follow the trajectory through the prophets, you eventually get to Malachi, and he makes that point as a climax, and Jesus picks that out and makes that the framework. Built on Moses, but he makes that the framework for New Testament sexual ethics. You see, if you want more than one, you're going to be in trouble. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. This is a little bit later in the chapter, verse 24. No one can serve two wives. I mean, two masters. Good luck. Either way. Either you'll hate the one or love the other. You'll be devoted to the one or despise the other. And then he introduces another idol. You cannot serve both God and money. Remember this letter. It's written to people whose circumstances are challenging and demanding. And James is calling even these who don't have much. He's saying, don't commit adultery. Don't think you're going to satisfy your needs somewhere else. And then verse 5 is quite famously difficult amongst the theologians, but Lindsay isn't here, so I might get away with it. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he longs for the Spirit, he jealously longs for the Spirit he's caused to dwell within us? Now, it's a, it's a tricky verse, um, and we're not certain of the correct meaning. And with this particular translation, the problem is, he says, do you think Scripture says, well, there's no Scripture that says what he says. Do you think Scripture says? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. And it's not even in the rabbinic writings or anything like that. There's just no place where Scripture says what he says it says. And so it's a little bit complicated. Now, there are lots of permutations in terms of handling that. And I don't want to derail the main point of the sermon, which is uh, by chasing a rabbit here. But maybe a better way of saying it is like this. Can you think of a reading or a reason from Scripture that the Spirit of God causes, that the Spirit that God causes to live within us, meaning the Spirit of Jesus, can you think of a Scripture in which that Spirit will make us mean and jealous and insecure? Now, that fits with the whole theme of the letter and also with the context, especially verses 1 to 3. 
And it brings us to the highlight of the passage, which is the turning point in verse 6. The turning point is, but God gives us more grace. Up until then, it's been, we're always like punch drunk as you're going through the text. I mean, we're in trouble. Not only have we been using our tongues for lousy stuff in chapter 3, but there's this, this anger and this jealousy and this resentment and this, you know, spirituality gone selfish and rotten. And he stops and he says, but God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. And that is in the Old Testament in Proverbs 3 verse 34. See again the mindset or the solution that is in James's heart when he's dealing with these problem issues in, in the people's lives. He says God is generous, but God gives more. His solution is in the abundance that God is willing to give. God gives more. Remember, we saw those two ways of wisdom. One wisdom is rooted in this scarcity mindset, and it has this deep fear of going without, of not getting what we want, and of suffering lack. And if anyone else receives love or honor or success, it means that I am somehow being robbed. And so I, I have to be jealous of that to which I am entitled. And we saw James described it as earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. It makes sense to the people who believe it, but it is, it is dark, dark stuff. And it believes that the things that matter most are scarce commodities and that when someone gets them, I lose out. But if you understand the kingdom of God, when someone gives away grace or someone gives away kindness or mercy or forgiveness, it's precisely in the kingdom of God that those things can grow and multiply. God gives us more grace. Now, he's not offering a kind of cheap grace or trivializing it and saying, doesn't matter what you do. He's going to take us through some hard, hard work to, to access that grace and let it become real in our lives. But the deep change that we need that can go in and, and undo the stuff that's fighting the goodness that God wants to release in us it comes at God's initiative and out of his fierce determination to love and his desire to change us with kindness. So the Passion Paraphrase, which is a kind of amplified Bible, quotes, uh, gives us Romans 2 verse 4 in this way. Do the riches of God's extraordinary kindness make you take him for granted and despise him? Haven't you experienced how kind and understanding God has been to you? Don't mistake his tolerance for acceptance. Don't you realize that all the abundant wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you to repentance? See the theme of generosity. God gives us more grace. And then verse 4, I mean, fourthly, we see God's invitation 
that contains both command and promise. And says this, submit yourselves then to God. We've hit the turning point. We're on the home straight. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember the great themes of the book of James. He's now at the absolute coalface of how we can change in areas of favoritism, in areas of, of taking care of the widow and the orphan. We are at the absolute coalface of change in, in dealing with the power of our tongue, in learning to pray in faith. We are at the center point. The hinge of the whole book is now about to open up to us. You see, if... We want this completeness. If we want this tamim, this wholehearted devotion to God, if we want to see shalom, if we want to see righteousness, we must dethrone ourselves. Our ambitions, our desires, our pleasures, our pride, must die. And in that place, we own up utterly to our need for this grace. Not excusing our sin, not pretending it didn't happen, but owning it and grieving profoundly in humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now the language of battle continues. But this time it's not a battle against God to get our way. It's a battle against our own desires and pride to bring that in submission to God. And from that place of submission and safety and surrender, we can turn to the enemy who's been trying to rule us and ruin us and resist him. And when we've found that place of grace, he is unable to stand. And James says, when you resist him from that place, he will flee from you. Can I get an amen? Mm -hmm. And then we enter into this language of forgiveness, repentance, of washing and cleansing. The early Christians would have remembered that moment when they turned to Jesus and someone said, have you believed? And they said, yes. They said, let's find water. And you would have been immersed into some flowing water or sometimes some standing water, but you would have been immersed into that water. And part of that symbolism is that you're dying to an old way of life defined by its sin and you're rising to a new way of life and you are being washed clean. But at the very center of these verses is another word picture that comes from Jesus. James says, come near to God. He will come near to you. Anyone think of the word picture from Jesus? It's a story called the prodigal son. Far from home feeling completely unworthy of his birthright 
and a place as a son in his own father's house. We meet a young man, filthy, outcast. But he decides to try and head home, to come near to the father that he scorned and shamed in front of the whole community. And everything that he thought would have given him pleasure and value and worth has proven to be worthless. His pleasures have robbed him of what he most needed and wanted. And he knows in this place that he is not worthy. But still he somehow finds it in himself to want to come near. To want to go home. And to say he's sorry. He doesn't believe that he deserves the forgiveness that he craves, but he, <laughs> and he doesn't even know, as we read the parable, that his good, merciful, and generous Father has been watching and waiting. His father has been waiting for this moment, and while he is still a long way off, but he is trying to come near, his father jumps up and runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him on his cheeks in front of a stunned community. Come near to God. I don't know what your life is I don't know what you think you've messed up and disappointed God and why he shouldn't allow you back in. But James says, if you will come near, God will come near. If you will head home, God will throw open the doors and welcome you in. He'll kill the fatted calf. He'll put a robe on you. He'll put sandals on your feet. He'll put a ring on your finger. And he'll tell everybody that my son has come home. Come near to God. He will come near to you. You know, the word prodigal means wasteful. And Tim Keller says the most prodigal person in that story is the father who represents God. We have a God whose love is so extravagant and so enormous and so kind, the only way we could describe it is wasteful. And yet we are challenged by James not to waste it. And so he brings us to the end, and in conclusion, we need to humble ourselves. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Why do we grieve during repentance? Well, you see, grieving, all, all grieving, all true grieving, contains the power to begin again. And when we are repenting, we're realizing we need a new start. I've been doing one thing. I've got to stop doing that thing. I need, I need another way of living. I need another way of doing. And so when we grieve well, we break the emotional and mental and spiritual attachments and agreements to someone or something that for whatever reason 
is not going to be part of our lives going forward. You understand why repentance is going to need an essential grief that's part of it? Because we love our idols. <laughs> we love our sin. We justify it. We don't really want to change. And how many of you know that God always humbles us more than we intended? <laughs> yeah, Lord, I, I need a little bit of humility, but not too much. Please, please. Well, the invitation, James says, is, is if you'll humble yourself, then the work God does is to lift you up. But if you refuse to humble yourself, you'll find God will knock you down several notches. I remember at our previous church, a husband and a dad had started accompanying his family to church, but he told me plainly he wasn't a believer. He was just doing it because it's pretty much the only activity in the week that the family were going to do together. And he'd be coming for several months and seemed to be completely unaffected and utterly bored. I don't know why. I, you know, I can't imagine why someone would be bored in <laughs> Don't answer. I was not aware of it. One Sunday during worship, he saw me kneeling. I was sort of like on the right-hand side somewhere. And he saw me kneeling and weeping during worship. He didn't know that during that worship service, the Lord was graciously giving me a vision of a golden harp. It was a worship harp. The harp was the worship that my life could bring. But what God showed me in that vision was that each week the worship I brought was dependent upon the strings on the harp, and the strings of the harp were the genuinely kind and selfless things I'd done during the week, which is beautiful, golden harp. Except the Lord showed me that week I had two strings, bling, plong, bling, plong, bling, plong. I'd been utterly selfish and mean during that week. And I wept my repentance. Everyone else was standing, I don't know, but Ross was standing right behind me and he alone saw me against the wall just emptying myself of my pride, renouncing it cursing it in Jesus' name and telling it to go and asking God to send a soft heart that genuinely shows Jesus. I don't want empty worship. I want a life that sings the praise of God. I'd never seen worship in a way that that vision explained it to me. And I grieved that my worship was so small and so limited that week. In any case, I still had to get up and preach after that, which was pretty rough. But after church, this guy, Ross, came to me and said, don't do that, man. It freaked me out to see a man cry. And I said to him, well, you know, sometimes that's just what happens when God is changing your heart. And the next week when I stood up to preach, one of the people I noticed first was Ross. It was hard to miss him. His eyes were red because he'd been crying like a baby. 
was the same the following week and the same the next one. Every single week he walked into church. He couldn't even get through the announcements and he wasn't crying. And eventually, after church, after about a month of him sobbing his way through just about every part of the church, I went to him and I said to him, bro, you might as well give up. You know what's happening. Sometimes this is just what happens when God is changing your heart. And that day, we sat down, prayed together, and he confessed and repented of his attachment to his old life, his old wisdom, his old thoughts. And then he said, God, I surrender. I invite you to redefine my life. And I believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he humbled himself, came near to God. God came near to him and lifted him up. Today, he still loves and follows Jesus. In fact, he changed his job and now does amazing work amongst the poor and the needy. A life changed. You see, there's such an invitation and a power locked right into the passage before us because it's for James the hinge point, the turning point. It's showing us who God is and what he is like, but how we respond to align to the God who invites us to come near to the God who gives more grace. Let's pray together. Anyone on the steering team who just has a sense of what we should do next? My prayer is that there's someone today and God is calling you home. And you know you're far and you know you don't deserve it. But you're hearing of the generous, steadfast, faithful love of God. And today God wants, to, wants you to dare to believe that that love and grace will include you. And the enemies want to tell you that you're a failure. You, you've, you've messed up. And that there's no more forgiveness. Well, today you could submit to God, resist the devil, and that voice must flee. And today you can receive a new sense of self. Today you can enter the path of change that James mapped to these original readers and listeners. You see, that path of change first articulated by Jesus and now preached for centuries by his followers, 
is the path of change that God is inviting you on. And he's inviting you to grieve. He's inviting you to let go of your idols. He's inviting you to stop living for yourself. And he's inviting you to trust in Jesus and live for him. Now you're going to need courage. Is there anybody for whom that makes complete sense right now for where you are in your life? And you say, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. Just raise your hand. I'm looking and I will acknowledge it. You can put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Father, you are calling us to yourself. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You're confronting us with an amazing, amazing opportunity to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and to receive the Spirit of Jesus that does not make us mean or jealous or angry. And so today, Lord Jesus, we all pray, but especially those who raise their hands. We say, Jesus, we putting our faith and our hope in you. We turn from living for ourselves, for our own ambitions, our selfish desires. They just cause a war. And today we abandon ourselves to a life of surrender. We know there will still be a war, but it will be a very different one. It will be resisting the enemy who's wanted to destroy us all along. And so, Lord Jesus, today, in repentance and trust, I put my faith in you and ask for a new heart. Amen.